I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. As we speak, there are 600 million people in Africa who lack access to even basic electricity. That's driven in part by low levels of domestic and foreign investment into electricity infrastructure across the continent. Over the last decade, just 3% of capital invested into energy infrastructure worldwide went to Africa. To enable universal energy access in Africa and to solve the problem of the lack of climate financing directed to the continent, we'll need innovative climate financing solutions that get the right kind of capital to the right kind of projects at the right time. And that's exactly what this month's What It Takes guest, Kate Steele, co-founder and CEO of Nithio, is doing. So Nithya was actually from the Egyptian goddess Neith, uh, who wove the universe together as kind of a, a Mother Earth uh, symbol. It's the perfect name for a company that weaves together two climate financing strategies to deliver energy access solutions in Africa. First, Nithio uses AI-powered analytics to help investors, local banks, and grant makers understand payment patterns, credit risk, and portfolio quality in the distributed energy space. Second, Nithio operates a financing vehicle called Nithio Fi, powered by its analytics that provides loans to energy access distributors that need constant capital to be able to grow and reach the millions of households with no electricity access or unreliable energy access. So that could be small solar panel, battery, basic appliances, you think lighting, cell phone charging, maybe a radio, television, getting into maybe even some productive use appliances, hair clippers, sewing machine, things like that. Nithia was founded five years ago. Their financing vehicle has only been up and running for about a year and a half, but it's already had an incredible impact. So far, our financing has provided uh, electricity access for, for over 250,000 people. You know, the solar home systems are, are mitigating carbon in terms of offsetting kerosene, in some cases diesel. So the, the climate impact from that has been over 700,000 tons of CO2 avoided. Approaching energy access in Africa through climate finance via the private sector hasn't always been the way that Kate has made a difference. I spoke with Kate about her journey to becoming a founder, starting with her childhood in Durham, North Carolina, and the high school ditch day that changed her life for the better. So, Kate, we first connected in January of 2014, so that was just a year into Powerhouse's existence when you were leading the energy access and investments team at Google. And I don't think I've ever said it in these words, but it probably won't surprise you that I had an immediate, what I can only call a career crush. <laughs> and then I later learned that we had all these things in common. We're the same Enneagram type, which is an eight. Uh, we share the same birthday, which yes. is coming up on the 4th of July. We both pioneered our own educational paths, although you took yours much farther than I took mine. Um, so my career crush remains, and I'm very grateful to have you on the show. Well, it, it is very much mutual. So uh, I felt the same way when I met you. So <laughs> mutual love. <laughs> um, so Kate, going all the way back to your early life, you grew up in Durham, North Carolina with your parents and older brother. What was it like growing up in Durham? And tell me about your parents. So, so Durham was a fantastic place to grow up. I, I grew up basically on the, the border of Durham and Chapel Hill. So deep in the the, the Duke-Carolina rivalry, and I'm very much Team team Carolina. Uh, but it was kind of idyllic suburban lifestyle. I mean, we played, you know, 
kickball in the streets and rode our bikes everywhere. That uh, actually, if you've seen Stranger Things, the the guys that wrote Stranger Things uh, went to my high school, and I think they, uh, <laughs> I think they they captured uh, Durham in the '80s pretty well. If you if you leave out all the monsters, <laughs> my dad's actually from Durham. Uh, my mom is from north of Boston. They they met working in a restaurant in uh, Rockport, Massachusetts, but. Yeah, and they're, I, both of them are kind of history majors, worked always in, uh, you know, my dad's a, a lawyer. My mom uh, worked in the administration at UNC, uh, UNC Chapel Hill, and was a teacher before that. So the, the engineering was a bit of a surprise, I think, that I, I went that direction. Mm. How do you think they shaped you? Uh, in so many ways. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think they gave me a lot of uh, a lot of flexibility. I think there was always a focus on um, on academics and and uh, and that path, but also just doing something you were really passionate about. So, um, and I think they they really indulged my my wanting to go off and wander and, and see a lot of the world as well. Nice. What were you like in middle school and high school? And did you have a sense of what you wanted to do uh, for a career at that time in your life? So I'm going to go all, all the way back to, to kindergarten to say I was a, a huge tomboy when I was little. And uh, my, my first career goal was to be the first uh, female player in the NBA before the, before the WNBA uh, existed. <laughs> I love this. Uh, but then going, uh, I say middle school, I think everyone says middle school is awkward, but especially coming out of the tomboy phase, I think that was uh, especially awkward. But through that, I, I was really, I, for a very long time, I wanted to be a doctor. And that was kind of uh, through elementary school, middle school, high school. That was very much what I was focused on. But I think, no surprise, was very academically focused, very sports focused. That was kind of me through those years. Mm-hmm. And then I understand you discovered engineering, which is what made you ultimately pivot away from that desire to be a doctor. Uh, you discovered it out of a desire to just ditch a day of school. Is that right? That, that is true. Uh, so I was uh, taking physics my junior year, and you could get out of class for the day if you went to uh, a women in engineering program at Duke, that they were having a day where they were hosting high school students, kind of showing you some of the labs, having professors talk about what they were doing. Um, and this is embarrassing to admit, but I don't think I knew what an engineer did. Uh, and I don't think I'd really ever thought about it. And, and so went to this, this day and, and saw a lot of people talking about the word, what they were doing, and it kind of clicked. Like, Oh, engineers design and build things. Like I really like doing that. That would be that would make a lot of sense for me to do that. Mm. And so then, after graduating from high school, you went uh, total opposite end of the country. You came out to Stanford and eventually decided to study mechanical engineering. Why Stanford? And how did you ultimately decide on mechanical engineering? I mean, you're sitting in the Bay Area. Like, why why not Stanford? It's it's an amazing place, and I think it's uh, it's even a more amazing place than I when I went there 20 years ago. I think what they're doing with the Door School and with sustainability is is fantastic. Um, but I did I I wanted to go someplace that was different than when I, where I grew up. I think that was uh, I I loved North Carolina, but kind of thought the world was big and I needed to to see more of it. Um, and one of the reasons I went to Stanford so that that spark of interest in engineering actually didn't last initially, and I senior year of high school was much more interested in, you know, history and, and anthropology and all these things that I thought would be more kind of study of cultures. And I thought that was a fit for me. Um, uh, and so I still took AP physics, so I was still uh, a little bit on that track. But I went, I went to Stanford partly because you, you don't apply to a separate school, that you're, if you're doing engineering, you start in the general program and you have a lot of the same, uh, you know, general education requirements as everyone else. So it gave the flexibility to not commit to engineering initially. And that was, that was really nice. Hmm. What did make you ultimately commit to it? 
Uh, so my, my freshman year, I was taking, I was only taking Japanese history, like a early anthropology class, uh, psychology, and then kind of a great books class. And I uh, was, I had a reading chair that I used to study in a lot. And I was making a, this shelf to put my coffee on while I was studying and kind of designed it out and sketched out and like was thinking about like how much weight it could hold and things like that. Uh, and had so much fun doing it that I was like, okay, yeah, this is what I really want to do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start <laughs> with engineering classes next uh, next quarter and really pursue that. I love that something as simple as a, a little shelf could change your life yes. <laughs> in such a meaningful way. Yeah, mechanical engineering is fun. That was the main reason I did it. I, I thought it was fun. So then, after graduating from Stanford, you took a really uncharted path and moved to Kenya. How did that come about, and what did you do there? Uh, so my senior year, I was uh, I was talking to a friend. Uh, for the five people who remember ICQ and what that was, I was I was chatting online with someone <laughs> and said, "I you know senior year, I need to figure out what I'm going to do next." Um, and then said, "If I could do anything, what I'd really like to do is travel." Uh, and then almost immediately wrote to him, and that's what I'm going to do because I, I think if you know, you're at a time where there was I didn't have a lot of, of responsibilities or things that I needed to to start doing. Um, I had student loans that I could defer, and I'd, I'd worked all through college, so had had some savings that I could draw from, um, but really just wanted to get out and see more. And so I, I found a, a volunteer teaching position in Kenya. I'd always wanted to go to Africa for totally unknown reasons, um, and I knew very little about Kenya. Uh, and so found on teachabroad.com, um, pretty early days of, of uh, websites that uh, this uh, place that I could do a, a volunteer teaching position, they would provide me a stipend and a place to stay. And it was great. I think half my family thought the school was not going to exist when I actually got there because I had so little communication ahead of time. <laughs> but, it, but it did. Um, but it was a fantastic experience and really set the course of the next 20 plus years because while I was there, there was an electricity crisis. There was power rationing. So I had a schedule of when my electricity was supposed to be on and off. Frequently was not correct. That also impacted water in my building because like the pumps wouldn't work. And so that got me really interested in looking up, you know, how few people had access to electricity in Kenya at that time. It was less than 5% in rural areas then. And, you know, I'm a freshly minted engineer. Um, started looking at like, this isn't a technical problem. Like you can, it's not that complicated to build out a power system. So really got interested in what was preventing that. And so started digging in on like, what, what were the financing challenges? What were the, the management and policy challenges? Um, and just found that was a really meaty problem. Um, yeah. And then that took you from Kenya. You kept going east and landed <laughs> in Melbourne, Australia for a master's in development technologies engineering. Why grad school and why University of Melbourne? Yeah, I kept going east. At the time, you could buy round-the-world tickets where you could just keep going the same direction. So I think I bought like <laughs> three in a row. I was like, I need to do this. But uh yeah, University of Melbourne was because I, I really wanted to go someplace that I could study specifically design and, and technology for developing world. And, and a lot of places had a class on that, but they didn't have a specific program. And um, now this is actually much more common, but at the time, the only one I found was the International Development Technology Center at Melbourne. And really interesting program. Like all of the, almost all of the students were from developing countries. Uh, there was one other American who was in the program. But it uh, really helped me solidify, like, I knew there was a meaty problem, but this kind of helped me put parameters on what I was really interested in and, you know, loved the, the classmates that were there and what I learned from them. But then also was in, because I was in the Southern Hemisphere, I did an internship and then stayed on in South Africa and wrote my master's thesis on some work I was doing with a company that was 
really one of the earliest uh, pay-as-you-go solar home system providers that in in 2003, they were doing pay-as-you-go. And so then from Melbourne, you kept going east and made it almost full circle uh, (laughs) when you went to MIT to get your PhD in engineering systems. Why the PhD and how did you decide on MIT? So I almost I almost stopped going east. I was uh, planning to actually potentially stay in South Africa and uh, and was already working with a company that I was had been doing my my master's work with to see if I could get a visa to actually stay and work for them. But I really still felt like I was just scratching the surface, and uh, so I had another kind of moment of clarity and then said, you know, I, I think I need to go deeper into this. But again, maybe this naivete of like what I thought a PhD was, uh, I, I graduated college with no intention to go to grad school. So it's kind of funny that I've ended up going, going twice now. But um, I really thought I just had this issue that I wanted to dig into deeply and that I would go somewhere and I would study that. And, and most programs I talked to, that was what I presented. And I kind of got told, like, that's not how this works. Like when you do a PhD, you come and work for a lab or for a professor for an established project and and basically earn the right to do something else. And um, MIT was extremely flexible that when I, I met with them to, to basically drop off my application and, and ended up meeting with uh, the professor that became my advisor, Dave Marks. And he, I, I told him what I wanted to do was very specific about kind of power systems developing world and, and some of the issues there. And he basically said, like, I think we can make that work. And that's a really interesting problem. Like, let's figure it out. And so it was I think just the, it's such an MIT thing because I think they're so flexible and entrepreneurial and, but it ended up being an amazing time to be there because it was right when the MIT Energy Initiative launched, the, uh, the Energy Club launched, and then there was just such enthusiasm around uh, the energy community and it's been an unbelievable network to this day. Mm-hmm. So you finished your PhD in 2008, and then for the next four years, you worked as an energy specialist at the World Bank, working in South Asia and Africa. And then 2012, you left the World Bank because Google knocked on your door and convinced you to join them, leading their energy access and investments team. Then 2014, you joined USAID on their Power Africa team. How did you decide to make those transitions? And then what did you learn from your time at World Bank, Google, and USAID? Yeah, it was a lot of like basically chasing where I thought I could have the, the most impact. So I was always looking for places that had a lot of resources and a lot of uh, ability to, to do big things. And I think the, the World Bank has a lot of resources. They work very directly with governments um, and, and was able to do really interesting projects there. But while I was there, I started uh, working with and then managing the Lighting Africa program. And this was kind of early development of the market. At that time, lanterns uh, to replace kerosene, solar lanterns to replace kerosene. But very private sector driven to try and help these private companies be able to be sustainable and, and provide these really good solutions for people. But that made, got me thinking that there was a private sector solution and a private sector angle to this. And so when I started talking to Google, I was like, well, Google has more resources than almost anyone <laughs> and, and ability to, to influence things. Um, and so I went there because they were really ramping up on, on wanting to do more work in energy access. And they'd been uh, already uh, uh, invested heavily in renewable energy in in U.S. and was looking a lot at emerging markets. So that was a, a, a really fantastic opportunity, but also really highlighted that uh, these markets weren't necessarily ready for a fully private sector solution, that um, you know, there's still a lot of risk and there was a lot of things that I thought the public side could be doing better to, to de-risk these projects and, and bring in more investment. So that actually prompted the, the switch back to back to the East Coast and back to public sector that I, I started talking with Power Africa 
Empower Africa is an Obama initiative that was launched to double access to electricity um, in sub-Saharan Africa. And really, their goal was to use public resources that were relatively finite to bring in private sector uh, investment. And I was like, well, that's exactly what the problem is here. That's what I'm seeing at Google. Um, so it felt like it was time to kind of move back to the public sector and influence how we could better bring in the private sector, because I'd seen the challenges from, from Google's side. So all this kind of culminates with kind of leading to Nithio, because I, I feel like it's always going to be public and private. There's always going to be a need for both uh, forms of capital. Um, I do think that there needs to be a commercial solution, so hence wanting to be kind of back in, in private sector. Um, but I think risk is, is just the key. So figuring out ways that you can de-risk to drive investment, that's really what, what Nithio is created to do. Mm. So you already had these conclusions that you had drawn from World Bank, from Google, from USAID and Power Africa. And then you met your co-founders, Queen, Shinyere Quinn, and Bobby Pittman. How did you meet them? And, and how did your minds meld uh, <laughs> as you started iterating on Nithio? So I actually already knew them. Uh, actually, Bobby swears we met in Nairobi during the Obama visit there, but I was so exhausted. I actually don't remember that. So, uh, <laughs> but I, I believe him that that's true. But we, you know, if people who do African investment in, in the DC area generally know each other. So uh, we, we had already run across each other before. But when they were uh, incubating Nithio, I started talking with them um, more just as kind of advisor, like, is this a good idea? Is this something that was needed in the market? Um, and clearly, I really thought it was. I thought this was a great kind of pulling together of all of these pieces, but I was still wrapping up a lot of things with Power Africa. So it just happened that Power Africa got to a, a good place about the time that they were getting closer to launch, and they they asked me to to join the team and, and launch Nithio with them. Mm. And what made you say yes? <laughs> um, I mean, I, the same thing, the impact. I feel like if you could, you, it was an opportunity to bring together all those pieces and do something that I, I did believe was scalable. And I, I think if you can do something that bring, makes the whole sector successful, I think that's one, just so satisfying, but also so necessary. Um, I mean, and the fact that, that Bobby and Queen and their, their other partner, Kupanda Linda, are delightful people and it was wonderful to work with them was, was definitely a big selling point as well. But, um, but it was a really just a good fit of kind of bringing together those different pieces I've been working on for, for 15 years at that point. Mm. Prior to them asking you to join the founding team, had you ever thought you would start your own company? Was that on your radar or was that totally out of left field when they asked you? A little bit in that uh, I have a lot of friends who are founders, um, a lot who who were founders more right out of grad school. And so um, I kind of knew, knew what the, that was like um, and in some ways felt like had a bit missed the window on it because I, I think there's such a myth around kind of the young founders and uh, you know, bootstrapping and, and sleeping on someone's sofa while you, you figure things out. Uh, so I, I felt like that was a little bit past. Like at that time, most people I knew who were founders had, had either moved on or, or founded something new. So uh, it had always been in the back of my mind, but um, wasn't sure kind of what would be the right opportunity. Coming up, Kate sets out to raise capital. But first, a word from our sponsors. What It Takes is brought to you by SPAN, makers of the award-winning SPAN panel, a smart electrical panel that enhances how homeowners interact with their energy. SPAN is headquartered here in San Francisco and has been recognized by Fast Company as one of the 10 most innovative energy companies in the world, backed by a leadership team that brings decades of climate technology experience from Tesla, Sunrun, and Google Nest. 
I had Span founder and CEO Arch Rao as a guest on What It Takes last year for a great conversation about the future of residential energy. Are you thinking of adding EV charging, solar and battery storage, or energy-efficient upgrades to your home like a heat pump? Wired recommends the Span Smart Electrical Panel as a, quote, borderline genius app-controlled electrical panel that brings unprecedented visibility into power consumption, almost essential if you have a backup battery. Span is growing their team and was recently top five in Forbes' 2023 list of America's best startup employers. They also just closed a $96 million Series B2 funding round, bringing total funding to date to $231 million. Interested in advancing your career at one of the premier companies in climate technology or getting Span installed in your home? Visit span.io to learn more. What It Takes is also brought to you by Shell Ventures. Are you ready to accelerate the energy transition? With a dedicated $1.4 billion climate tech fund, Shell Ventures is partnering with innovative companies to build a low-carbon energy future. From renewable energy solutions to next-gen mobility and carbon abatement and removal, their portfolio of investments includes some of the most promising companies at the forefront of the energy transition. Portfolio companies like Flare, who are reducing homeowners' heating and cooling expenses and emissions, like Ample, who are solving how fleets get electric energy in cities, and like Palmetto, who have built a clean energy marketplace. Shell Ventures is more than capital. They specialize in unlocking deployment opportunities both inside and outside of Shell to help their portfolio companies scale, access customers, and commercialize their solutions. Visit shell.com forward slash ventures to learn more about how they can help your company reach the next level of growth. Now you need some capital. Where did the initial capital for Nithio come from? What was it like raising that initial capital, especially given in the U.S. especially, there's so much stigma from investors against startups that are working in emerging markets, especially those working in Africa. So what was that process like? I have to say, this was actually a relatively straightforward because Kupanda had a relationship with, with TPG Rise Fund, and Rise was obviously global and impact-oriented, so they they knew what was going on. I think that that was the... It was a, there was a lot of familiarity there. And then one of the great things with that was, uh, so Maya Chorangel, who's uh, I, on our board, has been on our board from the beginning. Like, I mean, she's done all of this before. So I, I think she was such a great resource to to bring in from the beginning. So I, I will say the, the sell at the beginning was not as tough. Um, and we were really lucky. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so then after you raised that first round from TPG Rise with Kupanda's early support, what did you do first? And kind of how did you know what to do? Uh, hired a chief data scientist. That was the, the biggest thing is that we <laughs> we were building on top of a, a, a data platform that Kupanda had, had also founded uh, called Frame. And we, we knew what the models needed to be, but we needed someone to really have the vision to, to build that out. And so uh, we recruited someone who had worked on Frame initially and, and has just done really fantastic work at the intersection of uh, data analytics and, and impact. Um, so that was one of the first things was to kind of chase her and, and try and get her on board. Um, and then also just reach out to everyone I knew. I, I think one, just to make sure everyone knew where I had transitioned to, but knew we were going to need early partners with the, the companies who were distributing solar, we we're going to need partners with development finance institutions. Um, so really just kind of reaching out to the whole network and and talking to them about what else was needed, but also just making sure they were aware of what we were doing. What was the general general response? Supportive, you know, not supportive? <laughs> uh, somewhat mixed. I think they we working with companies, there were a lot of great companies that early on 
kind of opened up their data and we worked with them on what would be useful and what would be helpful to them. Um, others were far more secretive about not wanting to, to share in that way. Um, and then I would say same thing with uh, investors. I think there was, in the energy access space, there was a lot of investment that went in up to about 2016. Um, and then I think there were a lot of people, there was a kind of lull in, in investment after that. So we were launched kind of a couple of years into the lull. And so I think there was a feeling that there was new things that needed to be invested in. Either people felt like that was kind of taken care of or that uh, there wasn't additional funding needed and, and um, or people who were had concerns about where the sector was going. So I think we got got a lot of support, but also had some some skepticism of, about where we were focusing. Mm-hmm. And then tell me about the platform you're building at this point. You know, who are you building it for and what's the underlying tech behind it? So starting from the, the underlying tech, so uh, we basically bring together a lot of different data sets that uh, from frame data that we work with, kind of demographic information, really detailed demographic information. Uh, we look at past payment records um, and then we'll bring in sometimes kind of uh, different things related to like precipitation or aridity or proximity to re- uh, infrastructure, things like that. We kind of bring all those together. Uh, we first look at what different payment patterns are. So we run models that do different clustering and, and kind of figure out what are the different ways that people are paying off these assets. Um, and then we'll also, uh, we basically use that to build a predictive model about what is the likely portfolio in the future based on point of sale. From that, one of the one of the really great things about pay-as-you-go, pay-as-you-go was revolutionary in terms of opening up the market for financing. Um, it basically means that you, you pay for your solar home system, it's financed. Um, as you're paying off, if you're up to date with your payments, great, everything's working. If you fall behind, the system turns off, but you don't accrue additional interest. And then as soon as you can pay again, you pay, it turns back on. Terrific. It makes it much more, uh, much easier to deal with the uncertainty of rural incomes. However, it's really challenging when you're the one expecting that money back to not know how it's going to come back to you. And so that was a lot of what we've been able to model is what are those payment paths? And then how do you represent that in kind of a net present value and understand the value of that receivable upfront and so we use that to then uh, drive our financing too. And so that's kind of the, the underlying tech that then drives the, the as I said, the, the analytics that we sell on their own, but also the, the financing platform where our customers are still the, the borrowers, the people who are you know, getting financing from us and be able to grow their businesses. And then also these, uh, these investors who want to deploy capital and, and kind of need a platform to do that. Mm-hmm. So you're serving the investors who want to deploy capital. You are the investor yourself in some cases through through uh, Nithiofi, and then you're providing the analytics to distributors who are trying to ascertain the risk associated with the kind of distribution that they're doing. Is that right? So we do. Uh, we work with the companies themselves with the analytics to help them better understand risk, but we also work a lot with investors. There, there's not really a standard for how you understand. Uh, repayment rates or uh, or portfolio risk across different companies. So it's actually very hard to compare one company to another because uh, underpay-as-you-go default is really difficult to define. Um, and so with, that's one thing we'll work with companies actually to understand the portfolio overall and help them with due diligence or monitoring, um, but then also do work with companies themselves to, to better understand their risk. Mm-hmm. And in terms of you know building the company, who were your first customers on the platform and how did you get them? So I'll say the the first, uh, we worked with a couple of companies, as I said, early on, on the the data side. Um, The first borrowers that we had, we actually got a grant from the Solar Nigeria program um, from FCDO in the UK. 
And they that was enabled us to do some early pilot lending in Nigeria to two local companies. So those were the first two that we actually gave the money and like uh, expected it to come back. Uh, and then on the, I, I think on the other client side, the, the investors in Nithu FI, the, the initial investors were, um, we initially closed with Electrify, uh, FSD, which is Financial Sector Deepening Africa, as also a UK entity, um, and then USDFC, the US Development Finance Corporation. So they were the, the first ones to put money into Nithu FI that we were then able to deploy. Mm-hmm. Got it. And is it too soon to tell how happy they are with their investment? Or, or do we know there's enough data to know that they are happy? So, so far, so good. So we're a year and a half in. We initially closed with, with 23 million and we've committed over 20 of that. So I think uh, as far as being able to get money out to, to these, these borrowers, um, uh, and so far uh, doing extremely well in terms of portfolio quality. Excellent. And that $26 million, that's specific to Nithiofi, the, the investment vehicle where investors can invest and you deploy that capital? Yeah. So right, right now we're at $26 million. We've also brought in investments from Schmidt Family Foundation and Shell Foundation. Um, and then uh, watch that space. We're, we're hoping to, we have a few more things that are coming up. But, uh, but yes, those are investors into Nithiofi that we then deploy to companies. Got it. And so in addition to that capital in 2020, so two years after TPG Rise and Cupanda backed Nithio's launch, you raised uh, a Series A, which is when Powerhouse Ventures was really fortunate to join you as an investor. Uh, Who led that round? Who else participated? And then how did the A compare to raising that initial capital? Yeah, I mean, I think I, just the fact that it's in 2020, I think everyone will recognize it was a very different time. So mm-hmm. uh, we had... From the the initial capital that we raised, the the real big milestone we needed to reach was was closing the financing vehicle. So having investors into Nithio FI, and that was a drawn out process. But then when when COVID started, it really became difficult because I think so many investors immediately went to their own portfolio, and with very good reason. There were a lot of companies that were in a lot of trouble, and they needed to make sure they were going to get through that period. So I think that was one challenge we found. Um, we also found, I mean, there was a lot of discussion as to whether the sector was going to continue, that, you know, were people going to make payments? Were We had a lot of um, meetings. I think the first meeting, there was 90 stakeholders across the uh, kind of energy access community talking about uh, how to support the, the sector through, through COVID. Um, it turned out to be far more resilient than anyone expected, which was a nice, uh, nice outcome. But yeah, so we were uh, through that summer in 2020, needed to raise capital at the holdings level to do so needed to close the FI and so we had a pretty brutal summer of uncertainty and due diligence um, that I think everyone who was on our team at that time kind of remembers that as a dark period just because one we were all separated but we were uh, really really under the gun to to close everything um, the one thing that helped us through that I will say we electrify had committed at that point we did their their due diligence trip to DC. The last, the only one we've done in person was the week that everything shut down for COVID in, in the U.S. or the week before. So we kind of, uh, you know, bumped elbows as they left and talked about like, when we'd see them <laughs> relatively soon. And uh, that obviously changed quite a bit. But um, but raising th- that funding was really really difficult. We were extremely lucky to have continued support from from Rise Fund, but then also to bring in. Powerhouse Ventures, who are extremely excited. Obviously, having known you <laughs> and your uh, dynamism, I was uh, extremely excited to have you on our cap table. Uh, but then also brought in Emerson Collective, um, and they've been a great partner as well, and, and you know, kind of very well aligned in terms of of mission. So I, I think we got very lucky, but it was 
This is definitely a struggle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And at Emerson, that was Christian Okoye. It who was. Yes. Was there at the time? Yes. Yeah. Christian's the best. So this round, this this uh, round of capital that you just closed, what did it enable in terms of your team, the tech, your customer traction? Yeah. So it was basically. I, so I always have a problem with taking. Uh, you've raised money as like the end goal. Like that. That shouldn't yeah. be the victory. So we we closed the FI, and then it was basically like, and now we have to do the work. And that was now we actually have to implement what we what we said we could do. And so uh, we'd been building up a pipeline before that. Um, so we were able to to start dispersing uh, loans pretty pretty quickly. Um, but basically, the goal was to make smart loans and work really closely with companies. And and I think we've really been able to do that. We've done twelve loans to date. As I said, we've um, committed twenty million of the the initial capital, um, and really been able to work across. The goal was always to be able to fund. The biggest companies, and and we've worked with several of the the market leaders. Um, I've said congratulations to MCOPA for their their big raise that was announced that week. We were very happy to play a part in that. Um, but then down to some of the smallest companies that we've worked with, really small providers in in Kenya and Nigeria, and they're you know out there working with really remote communities. Um, and I think that's fantastic companies to be supporting as well. So kind of happy with our our whole portfolio. Um, so we've been building out that. We've also been um, building out analytics products. We have a dashboard product that we worked with a lot of investors on um, and, and provide that to them as a service. Um, and then we've built out the team. We, we've more than 20 people now, which is a big milestone, I think, uh, and spread across uh, seven countries at this point. We went pretty remote during, during COVID. But yeah, I think it's just uh, really, really focused on growth from here. But I, I think the, the hard work started with the, the close to be able to show that we could actually do what we said we could with the money. Mm, absolutely. So you started Nithio about five years ago in 2018. You've raised about 12 million. That doesn't include some of the grants that you mentioned. When you reflect on fundraising, what have you learned and what advice would you give to entrepreneurs raising in this moment now where we are seeing this you know, dip in the market, and especially those that are raising in emerging markets, especially those focused on Africa, and any advice specific to underrepresented founders? Yeah, it's a challenging environment. I think the the thing that I've seen from you know working in working in Africa specifically, I always feel like any conversation I start that has to open with there's 600 million people in Africa without access to electricity, and then go from there is probably not going to lead to investment because once you get to, I mean, not even starting with why is that, but that there's a solution, but the solution's not scaling because of these problems, and these are the problems that we address and how we can help it scale you're really kind of down a path that uh, a lot of people find interesting, but it's it's kind of too many steps for them to, to get there. So I'll say on, on one hand, it's you're going to have to pitch a lot of people, I think, if you're working uh, in, in Africa. Because the other side of that is, no matter if you think that's going to be the case, I think you always take the call. And I think that's based on that person that you're talking to, they may next week be at an event where they talk to someone who does have a deep interest in kind of climate tech, fintech in Africa, uh, they may have a colleague who was at a former fund. So I think it's uh, sometimes a little frustrating when you, you go down that full path, but I think you always have to take the call. And I think, you know, even more so as I, I don't always think of myself as a underrepresented because I, I think I've been very privileged in my career. So I, I have a, a lot of uh, really big networks I can tap into. Um, but I, I do think that just casting a wide net because you never know who's talking to whom. Hmm. Well said. Uh, in terms of lessons learned and reflections, you know, every founder on what it takes pretty much has been within months, weeks, days, or hours of closing their doors. Of those, how close has Nithio 
come to closing your doors and when was that? So I think we're, I would say we, we've twice gotten to kind of that month to six weeks. We've never got, we had one time when we were down to hours of needing to have money in the right place, but, uh, but that wouldn't have been a, a door shutting moment. Um, no, and this is, I think the most stressful thing as a, a founder is, is managing runway and the stress related to that. But I, I, Obviously, do do not want to end up at that point, but I think it's really about the the people that have spent so much time building Nithio and making sure we're kind of fair to them. And and you know, I, everyone on our team is so smart and capable. I have no doubt that they would find find something new if we did end up at that place. But just making sure they have the 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 advance notice if that's happening. So I think we never try and cut it too close. And I'll I'll, I'll knock on wood to say hopefully that's not our our, our future. Mm, indeed. If you could go back in time five years ago to when you were starting Nithio, what advice would you give yourself? Probably so many things, but uh, it's been an interesting five years. But I, I globally too, like this, uh, I don't think anyone could have predicted what the last five years looked like. Um, but really, just patience. I think uh, I think there's such an urgency to what we're trying to do. Um, but I also think sometimes slow and steady actually gets there. So I think that's the the advice would just be like, don't constantly waiting for the next thing to happen. Um, sometimes it has, yeah, continue to push on things, but but it's okay if it, uh, if it takes a little bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard for us Enneagram 8s to yes. embrace patience. <laughs> um, has your leadership style changed since you started Nithio? And if so, how? I would actually say no. So I previously managed large global teams. Um, and so that was in energy access. So I, I'm kind of a one-trick pony. So this was pretty familiar space for me <laughs> um, and and kind of knew all the issues of, of working with people across time zones and and a lot of that. And and I think I come very much from like the team sports mentality of, of trying to just kind of get everyone aligned around shared mission and, and work towards that. So I, I think it was it was a comfortable space to come into. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, can you speak to your experience as a, a white female founder leading a climate tech company in Africa and then also leading a company in the climate tech industry, which is majority white, but also majority male? Yeah. I mean, I think, as I said before, like it's hard to not think of myself as coming from a position of privilege. So I, I think I think of that more in terms of how we structure the team and, and kind of what we're trying to do with the team. So we are female founded. Uh, we're still 50% female, which uh, I'm quite proud of. And and we're still 50% people of color, which, I mean, quite honestly, we work in Africa, so it'd be extremely embarrassing if we were not. Um, but the, just thinking of, like, Kim, you said about leading. So we, that is the piece where, like, our our management team is is only 40% women. It's only, uh, you know, 20% people of color. So I think that's where we see constant work we need to do in terms of being able to make sure that we're providing opportunities for advancement and and continuing to make our company look like we want the sector to look. I will say our board is very much is 80% women, so we're doing doing okay there. It's awesome. Over Nithio's five-year existence and across the 24 people on your team today, there have been at least 10 babies born on the team, including yours. Can you speak to your experience being a parent and CEO at the same time and what's in the water <laughs> such that the Nithio team is having so many babies. Yeah, the the first Nithio babies actually turned four this summer. So, uh, and and actually, the oh. most of that happened before we were twenty four people. We uh, we have had quite the baby boom. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think it was. I, I'd like to think a, a bit of it. I don't think anyone made their life choices based on this. But uh, I mean, I chose to become a mom uh, a year into Nithio, so became not only a parent but a single parent. Uh, I'm a single mother by choice. Uh, 
like kind of a year into starting a startup and uh, happened to be the time that worked for me. But I but did take parental leave. Um, I won't say it was completely on leave because obviously I was still kind of keeping tabs on things and, and engaged. Um, but I'm hoping to set an example for the fact that you could do an early stage startup and could be at a small company and, and still take that time for your family. So, um, but then I think also like we do offer a lot of flexibility and I think we have a, a fantastic situation where people feel like they can, you know, not bring their, their entire family life into the picture, but uh, it's very common for people to say, you know, I'm juggling this today or I'm going to be taking this call while I do school drop off so I won't be on video um, and I think just allowing that flexibility and allowing people to be, it's okay to admit you have, have life outside of the company um, really gives that, that opportunity to people. Zooming out, what will the future of climate finance for energy access in Africa look like in a decade? So in a, in a decade, we're, we're three years past when we're supposed to have universal access to electricity. So um, I, I will say there, there's a number of places, I think it's going to be really mixed in Africa in terms of what we're doing in clean energy finance. So so some countries very much on path uh, on track with energy access. I think they'll they'll achieve it by then, if not well before. And then I think you see clean energy financing shifting to larger systems, to um, being able to interconnect systems and and large scale, uh, you know, CNI projects, commercial industrial projects, or, or grid scale projects, or even household things that can really just drive economic development and even increase quality of life. So I think there'll still be a very large clean energy financing market there. It'll just look a little bit, probably a little bit more similar to what we see in the U.S. Um, But then I think there's a a number of countries where they're not on track. You still have less than half the population lacking basic access. Um, And I think that's the piece we really also need to figure out is how do you reach those households? What's the right financing model that reaches them? What capital is needed Um, to ensure we're not in 10 years still saying, oh, it's really tragic that hundreds of millions of people don't have access to electricity. Mm, absolutely. And if Nithio succeeds, what does the company look like in a decade? So on the financing side, I, I think we just, we continue to grow and expand. I'd love to see us, you know, we deploying hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars, uh, ideally, because I think that's that's really what's needed. Uh, but continuing to build out across the continent, even potentially outside of Africa, there's, there's a, people who lack access to electricity and basic services outside of that. Um, and I think just kind of continuing to expand the scope of what we can do, kind of transitioning to that those opportunities on clean energy financing. Um, and I think on the analytics, still being able to provide risk assessments, figure out like what are those, those ways that we can productize what we're doing um, and really make sure that everyone uh, thinks about investing in, uh, in Africa. Hmm. Excellent. This is a great opportunity to pivot to my favorite part, which is our high-voltage round. Um, These are quick questions, quick answers. Uh, Starting with Kate Steele, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? (laughs) I'd love to say something more elegant, but I I do think that uh, I'm going to go with MIT mascot or unofficial mascot. So beaver, nature's engineers, uh, but also like they're very hardworking, working teams. Uh, They build very sustainable habitats. So I, I feel like that's like a good thing to try and emulate. Agreed. Very industrious. Um, we've had at least one, if not a few, beavers on what it takes. So you have a <laughs> you have a, a family. <laughs> what inspires you? Uh, I'm inspired by this. Is maybe a negative way to take it, but I'm I'm inspired by the scale of the problem and what I think we can do to address it. So I get I get really excited when I think about. Uh, that we're going to make a lot of progress on something or there's something that's going to have a, a lot of impact. So, um, and I always go back to, 
I usually carry this picture around. I don't anymore, but I had a picture of a woman in South Africa who had just gotten a solar home system with the company that I worked with when I was there. And uh, she just has this like really proud and defiant look. And she lives in a very remote area of KwaZulu-Natal. And so she was kind of my like inspiration of, of what I felt like I was working for. Mm-hmm. I love that. Um, also, I know, I think you know that I spent some time in KwaZulu-Natal, including yes. <laughs> pretty rural areas. So I, I can, you know. Envision. You can picture her. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Contractor. That's my like uh, late stage. Well, if we if we solve energy access, so, uh, that that could be it. I'm, yeah, I'm very into the 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 DIY, and it's back to the engineering, the the design and build. Um, but if there was some way to tie that also into uh, like affordable housing and uh, those pieces, that's that's definitely where I would go. Love it. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Uh, my, my mom and grandmothers that I think they're all just like, uh, very intelligent, independent, uh, fantastic, resilient women. So I think that's always kind of a, a guiding light. Mm, I love that. Tell me about a specific time that you failed. <laughs> uh, I feel like this is the, the constant interview question and I don't have a good answer to, uh, I, I don't <laughs> think I've, I've had like a, maybe others could say what has been my spectacular failure, mm. but I don't think I've had like this <laughs> one giant moment where everything fell apart. I think I have a more day-to-day constant failure where I feel like there, there's always that, oh, I would have done that meeting differently, or uh, we uh, you know, submitted this, uh, this bid and didn't get it, or I think there's, there's kind of always those failures. But I think, I think the, the big collapse failure is maybe hard to come back from, whereas uh, constant small failures, I think, kind of builds <laughs> that, that resilience and, uh, and gets, makes you be creative about how you proceed. Mm-hmm. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? Uh, I don't think I've learned it yet. Patience. I think, I think that's, uh, that's what I said. I go back and tell my, myself from five years ago. I, I'm not sure I'm there yet. <laughs> Probably a lifelong path for, yes. for all of us. Um, what's the best investment you've ever made? Uh, I'd have to say, actually, I, coming out of grad school, I bought like a small house. Like I, it's, and, and I think like getting early into kind of the house you can afford, which is definitely not the house you necessarily want. Um, but is, is actually over time a good way to build, build kind of wealth and get kind of transition up to, uh, mm-hmm. the house maybe closer to what you, you want. But <laughs> I think it's, it's so difficult right, with, uh, affordability of housing right now. But I, I do think that that, that ended up being my best investment. Mm. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Uh, I'll say in, when I was coming, when I was in grad school and actually when I was finishing up, I was, I applied for, when I was going to the World Bank, I actually applied for a couple of academic jobs. I, I briefly mm-hmm. thought I might want to do that. Um, and I was really frustrated that every time I went on interviews, they would schedule me with uh, like the women's network group um, without asking me. And if that was something that I wanted to do. And I felt like it was mostly, you know, women who were 20, 30 years older than me. And I was very, very much respect the experience that they had had, but also felt like it didn't translate. I'd come through, you know, three engineering programs at that point. I was kind of fine with being the only woman in the room. And I think thought everything had kind of moved past that point um, and, now, and that there wouldn't be issues. And now kind of into my career, I see like we're, we're, we're not as, uh, as progressed on that as I thought we would be. Um, when are you your best self? Uh, first thing in the morning, really early morning. So I, I'm an early riser. My preference would be to get up at, at 5 a.m., go through my inbox, plan my day, work out. Uh, that's by far my best time. Mm. What is your worst trait? I, I feel like I've already used impatience. So I, I won't say that, but, uh, 
I, I think anyone who's managed me would say I, I have a really hard time not speaking up if I don't agree with something. Um, and Wait, and this is a bad thing? <laughs> I feel like in some context, it's a bad thing, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I actually remember when I, when I was at Google, uh, Dan Kamen, the uh, professor at Berkeley, met uh, my boss at Google, Rick Needham, and he, I, I introduced this, this is Rick, he's my boss, and, and Dan kind of made a comment about, like, does Kate really ever have a boss? And I was like, thank you, that is not, <laughs> not, not necessarily but the most helpful. <laughs> but is it not true? <laughs> I was like, but maybe true. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't say it's a worse trait, but that's definitely, like, I think some people would find it difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, shout out to Dan Kamen and Rick Needham. Yes, both of course. <laughs> awesome people in, in our space. Um, if there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Uh, my daughter. I mean, it'll be a few years. She's only three, so uh, she might not understand it for a little while. Um, and if she was in front of you right now, what would you say to her? Uh, well, I think if she was listening to this, I uh, whenever she does, I... I think maybe just take this as like, this is this is me, but you be you. That I, I always kind of worry that she'll think she like has to go to Stanford or has to do something international. And, uh, and honestly, just want her to do something that makes her happy. So she's to be herself. I love that. Uh, what is your best quality? Oh, uh, try to think of what someone else would say my best quality is. Cause <laughs> what's, what jumped to mind was I, I tend to be very direct, but I feel like I already said that as my worst trait. So <laughs> it could be both. I mean, I'm not sure that can be my worst and best. <laughs> I'll take it. Um, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because uh, they don't see change coming, or or they don't make the tough decisions to to respond to that change. I, I think inertia causes a lot of companies to fail. If you really knew me, you would know. I'm not even sure people who really know me uh, know this. Uh, so if you if you knew me, you know that the story I told about uh, the first time I got really interested in energy access was in Kenya is actually not true. But it is such my like origin story of how me. I got in, <laughs> no, it is, uh, how I got into this that I, I almost sometimes forget that it, there actually is a uh, so when I was between my freshman and sophomore year in college I was did a, did a fellowship that took me to to Southeast Asia for a month and spent a couple of nights in northern Thailand in a village that had been recently electrified um, and talked with a lot of people there and when I got back wrote a like very short case study on social impacts of electrification uh, that I think is in a textbook somewhere on wow. like uh, science, technology, and society. But that that didn't prompt me to like look up any other statistics or it was more the interest in the story of electrification, not the fact that there was massive gaps in electrification worldwide. So it didn't set the career path, but it was uh, there was a tiny little nugget there beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Success is... Uh, universal access to uh, energy that's clean, reliable, affordable for everyone. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have. Um, I mean, life. I think we could go back to a lot of things, but like, I think the uh, the in the company the the main thing I go back to as far as like what another thing we should have tried was uh, using more of our initial funding for kind of small loans. Um, and kind of testing the market um, before we had the financing vehicle up and running. And solar in Nigeria in some ways enabled us to do that. But I I think we could have done a bit more of that. Um, And maybe it would have worked and maybe not, but I think it would have potentially helped us build that track record that might have made bringing in investors easier. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be... Uh, in grad school, I was known as Africa Energy Girl, so I, that may just just stick. Still, still uh, are. Still, still, still am. I haven't, uh, haven't gone off that path. But I, yeah, I mean, hopefully uh, known for having contributed to some of the solutions. Mm. 
I'm most proud of? Uh, impact. That's, I, I mean, if, I think I, I focus so much of the time on the hundreds of millions of people who, who lack access, or I think when you start to factor in now the climate change effects that are going to happen, especially in developing world and, and uh, these rural areas, uh, it's really easy to get kind of daunted and feel like I have to constantly focus on what needs to be done. Um, but the, I mean, I've worked on a number of different projects across my career that have brought electricity to millions of people at this point. So I'm, I'm very proud of that. Hmm. Last question to build a successful startup, what it takes is embrace uncertainty. Hmm. What an awesome way to end, Kate. I have admired you from the first time I met you, and that admiration has only grown and continued. And I'm so grateful to be a tiny part of what you're building and the impact that you're having in the world. So thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks so much. I, I, I always enjoy talking to you, but uh, kind of fun to have them actually record our conversation this time. Kate Steele is the co-founder and CEO of Nithio. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I'd like to thank What It Takes listener Ak Fong, who said that What It Takes features engaging and thought-provoking conversations with climate tech founders that let the personal element shine through. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures, with support from PostScript Media. Contrary to popular belief, Powerhouse is not an incubator or an accelerator. We are an innovation firm that works with leading corporations and investors to help them find, partner with, invest in, and even acquire the most innovative startups in climate tech. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at joinpowerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. Whether you're a first-time or long-time listener, you can support the show by giving us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We read and appreciate every review, and we read some of them on the show. And if you have a friend or colleague who you think might like the episode, please send them the link. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Anne Bailey, Isabel Lee, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand is our engineer. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. 